All right. Good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting and gracious Father Yahuwah, yes. thank you so much for gathering your people together. Lord, you know our purpose in our study today. We want to learn from you through your holy book. But even if we read the best we can, if you will withhold the power of your Holy Spirit, we will not come to the understanding of your truth. As always, we pray for your spirit to dwell in our minds and our hearts, that we will benefit fully from the study of your divine words. Lord Yahushua, we ask for your presence. May you uphold us always, because we belong to you. We profess your name. We worship your name, Yahushua. Be with your servants always, that we will remain faithful to you and the Father. Oh God, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for attending our Bible History Project for today. We left off from last week. The people of Israel finally left left Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. However, there's a stumbling block in their way. It's called the Red Sea. Now, before we proceed... To the passages of scripture, I just want to ask you, okay, for your opinion, what comes to mind when you think of the word Red Sea? Or when you think of Red Sea, what comes to your mind? How about the word sea? What does that place in your mind? For some people, when they think of the word sea at night, it is something insurmountable, right? Have you ever looked at the sea or the ocean before? When you look at the vastness of the waters, you say it is impossible to cross. It is impossible to overcome. And when you add the word red, what comes to mind? Something ominous, death, something that brings suffering. Red sea conjures up in our mind some problem, some insurmountable hurdle that we have to face. How many here have a Red Sea that they're facing right now. (laughs) Because it wasn't just for the Israelites. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically here. All of us from time to time will experience events in our life when it seems like all forces are against us, right? Especially when you're being persecuted left and right, when bad things seem to happen to good people. These are the Red Sea experiences who will come across in our lifetime. So what we need to do, next slide please, is learn how to cross our Red Sea. So if you are facing a Red Sea right now, what can we learn from the book of Exodus to teach us to cross our personal Red Sea? Now, before the Red Sea became a problem for the people of Israel, what led to that? What was the instruction of Yahuwah, our God, to Moses after they left Egypt. Let's begin Exodus chapter 14, 1 down to 2. Then Yahuwah gave these instructions to Moses, ordered the Israelites to turn back and camp by Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. These are a lot of strange places, strange names. However, I want you to focus on the instruction God gave to Moses. After they left Egypt, they've been journeying for quite some time now, and then all of a sudden, God says, tell the Israelites to turn back and go back and camp in a place 
near Pihahiro. Next slide, please. This is what basically God is telling them. You see the blue line, right? That is their path. That is their journey. And so they pass Migdol. They go up to Etham. After they reach Etham, God tells them, go back. Go back to the place and camp near Pihahiroth across Baal Zephon. Now, why would God give an instruction like that? Seems like a strange instruction indeed. However, God has a purpose for everything. Do you believe that? Even this instruction has a purpose. What could it be? Let's find out. God is up to something. Exodus 14, 3 down to 4. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. Once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. Now, why would God want that to happen? I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahuwah. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Apparently, Yahuwah is not yet finished with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember when Moses first approached Pharaoh and said to him, you must let the people of Yahuwah go? What was the response of the Pharaoh? Who is Yahuwah? Now he's going to find out who Yahuwah is. This is why God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so when he receives the report that the Israelites seem to be trapped by the wilderness, then he's going to harden his heart and he will chase after the Israelites. Next slide. And so this is the news that was received by Pharaoh. You see the mountains there in the wilderness? And so they're trapped. The only way, yeah, walang tatakbuhan. There's no place to go because in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is are the mountains. So they're trapped. And so when the Pharaoh finds out about this, then he says to himself, we have a chance. We will go back and destroy the people of Israel. And so what does Pharaoh do? Let's read Exodus 14, 5 down to 7. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. And so after receiving the news that apparently the people of Israel is confused and trapped by the mountains and by the Red Sea, what does Pharaoh do? He takes his chariots, he takes his army, and he goes to chase after the people of Israel, just as God planned, right? What is God up to? Let's go to 14, 8 down to 9. Yahuwah hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised and defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers, and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pihahiroth across from Baal Zephon. And so because of what God orchestrated 
And because he hardened the heart of Pharaoh, what did Pharaoh and the Egyptians do? They chased the people of Israel with all of their might, with all of their forces. You know what that means for Israel? They're in big trouble, <laughs> right? When they see the people of Israel with all their chariots and weaponry, they're going to say to themselves, we're done, we're dead. <laughs> I want to go back to Egypt. And so that's suffering, right? That's suffering. And so what should we understand when we experience suffering in our life? The first principle we need to learn from this passage, next slide, please, so that we can learn how to cross our Red Sea. Number one, sometimes sufferings and trials have been ordained by God for his divine purpose. Do you believe that? God permits trials and sufferings in our life because he's up to something good. He will use that experience to change us, to transform us, to make us better and stronger, to perfect our faith. God always has a plan. We don't know all of God's plans, but he always has a plan. And oftentimes in God's plan, that includes us having to go through suffering in life. So the first thing we need to remember, if you're facing some kind of insurmountable Red Sea, God ordained that. God has a purpose for that. When we believe that, then we become confident and we learn to trust in our Father. And so what happened when the people of Israel saw that the Egyptians hasn't given up yet, and they're chasing after them? Let's read Exodus 14, 10 down to 12. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up <laughs> and panicked, which is a natural Emotion, if I was one of the Israelites and I saw the people of Egypt chasing after me and my kids, my teenage kids and my wife and all of you guys, I want to panic too, <laughs> right? It's a normal human response. And so they panic when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to Yahuwah and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why have, what have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And so when they saw the people of Egypt with all their chariots, all their commanders overtaking them, what happened to them? They panicked, and in their panic, they cried out to who? Yahuwah. But I don't think it was a sincere cry to Yahuwah, right? Why? Because after they cried out to Yahuwah, they begin to complain. They begin to blame who? Moses. You know, blaming and complaining doesn't mix well with prayer. You know, when we experience problems in life, when we are facing our Red Sea, is it good to cry out to God? Yeah, we should pray to our Lord God. But we should not mix our prayer with complaints. What should we mix our prayers with? Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Let's just go to Philippians for a while. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Pray about your Red Sea. Tell God what you need and complain. No, and thank him for all he has done. In other words, what God is telling us, if you're going to pray to me, 
Think about what he has already done for you. That's what the people of Israel should have done, right? They should have prayed to the Father. We see the Egyptians coming, but we know what you can do. We saw the 10 plagues. They just saw the 10 plagues, but they forgot it. And so when they prayed, they forgot what God had done for them. When we pray to God about our problems, always have in our mind and in our heart what God has already done for us. So pray and thank Him at the same time for all that He has done. If we pray like this, what shall we experience? Verse 7, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So this is what we need to do. Pray to the Father, and at the same time, let us remember the wonderful things God has done for us. Next slide, please. So to cross our Red Sea, we need to pray with thanksgiving, not pray with complaints, right? What else do we need to do? What else did, what happened next after they panicked when they saw the Egyptian army? Exodus 14, 13 and 14, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. You see, God knows people become afraid. And so God tells the Tell Moses, tell the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch Yahuwah rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. Yahuwah himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Doesn't this sound familiar? The promise of God, do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Isn't this the promise of God to the last messenger? Isn't this the promise of God to each and every one of us? It's the promise that was given before. It's the same promise given to us. You see, when God says to us, do not be afraid, he adds something after that. What is that? He says, because I will fight for you, right? You know, when God says, do not be afraid, it means stop relying on self. If you keep relying on self, you're going to be afraid because eventually we're going to face a force that's more powerful than us. But there's no one more powerful than who? Yeah. And so for us to overcome the fear, we need to place our trust and our hope in who? Yahuwah, our God. This is why he told Moses, tell the people, I will be the one to fight for them. You will never see these people ever again. And so we need to always pray. And at the same time, let us make sure that we place our hope and trust in the Father. Next slide. So number three, don't be afraid. And be calm, because this is not our work. It is the work of our almighty God. And so after God says this to Moses and the people of Israel, what else does he tell Moses? Exodus 14 and 15. Then Yahuwah said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. You know, there's a time to pray, and there's a time to act. Is it good to pray? Absolutely. But sometimes God also wants us to do our part, right? God also wants Moses to do his part. And so all of us, we are in partnership with the Father. We have a relationship with the Father. When the Father says to us, I will be your God, you will be my people, it means if we do our part as the people of God, he will do his part as our God. And so what was the, mar the part of Moses and the part of the people of Israel? Exodus 14, verse 16, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. See, that was the command. He had to obey that command. 
divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And so what God commanded was they're going to walk through the, the Red Sea. And so that requires a lot of faith. Faith that required action that they have never, ever thought to do before, right? And so sometimes when we face difficult, difficult things, let us rely on God. But at the same time, let us do our part, right? Next slide. And so get moving and fulfill our responsibility. And so if you don't have a job, you don't just pray for a job and then wait for the job to come to you. You have to do your part as well, right? If you're sick, you don't, have, you don't just pray to the Father. You have to do your part as well. It means becoming responsible. So we have a part. God has a part. Let's both do our parts and at the same time rely on the power of our almighty God. Now, what is the perp what does God want us to understand when we go through difficult times? Exodus 14, 17 to 18, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am Yahuwah. And so God had a purpose. He wants to show his glory. You cannot have glory unless you first have a great challenge, right? It's like if, you are, if you're a basketball team and you beat, you won the championship, but when you look at the contenders, they're really not that good. Do you get glory? No, but if you are an underdog and there's a, a team that's supposed to win the championship and you beat the favorite, you get a lot of glory. Do you see what, what I'm getting at? The greater the problem, the greater the glory if you overcome the problem. And so oftentimes when we face something difficult, it could be God is setting something up so that he can get glory. And so what do we need to do? Next slide. Let us find out how God can be glorified. Maybe you're sick, you're out of a job, but you still praise Him and worship Him. You glorify God in that manner. And so what did God do after He proclaimed that He wants to show His glory? Exodus 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, remember the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, that was in, ahead of them? Remember that? When they were led out, out of Egypt. And so this pillar of fire, this pillar of clouds through the angel, something happens here. Then the angel of God who had been leading the people of Israel moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. And so all this time, the pillar was in front of them, leading and guiding them, right? Now it goes to the back the back of them, to, in the rear of them. Why do you suppose that is? Huh? Protect. Protect. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, right? God's leadership, we, we, should, we can trust God because he will lead us from the front and protect us from the back. Why do we need, why did they need protection at that time? Let's go ahead and look at Exodus 14, verse 20. The clouds settled between the Egyptian and the Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, 
lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. You have to keep in mind, they're in this mess because God ordained it, right? It was God who caused the Egyptians to follow them and chase them. At the same time, it's also God that is preventing the Egyptians from overtaking the Egyptians. How? Through the angel. The pillar of light, the pillar of clouds, it separated the people of God from Egypt. You know what that shows us? Next slide, number six. That the worst problem that we can ever experience, Yahuwah is still in control. There are things he permits in our life, but he's still in control. He knows exactly how much we can take. Right? And so it was the same way with his people Israel. Yes, it was his idea. It was, he was the one who ordained all of that to take place. But at the same time, he was protecting his people from the rear. Because he did not want them to attack the people of Israel just yet. Why? Because God is up to something. What could that be? Exodus 14, 21 to 22. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and Yahuwah opened up a path. You see the path? Through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. This is called the Red Sea crossing. What did Moses do? So that God's power was sent so that the sea would be parted. God, uh, Moses raised his hand over the sea. What instrument did God use? A strong east wind. You notice when God does miracles, he also uses what's available. Moses and his staff, the strong east wind. Right? And so he used that to blow over the sea, and the, the result was the seabed became dry land. So he blew the water away using a strong east wind. And what did the people of Israel do? They walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. You know, at this point, are you interested in finding out where could this crossing have taken place? Because if it's... If it's uh, through the Red Sea, that's a long walk, <laughs> right? That's a long walk. Where could it have taken place? This is uh, what many scholars believe. Next slide. You see the Red Sea right there at the bottom? The Red Sea extends northward and becomes the Gulf of Suez. And in the Gulf of Aquaba, where do you think the crossing took place? Many Bible scholars claim that it did not take place there at the Gulf of Suez or the Gulf of Aqaba, but it took place north of the Gulf of Suez, right, by the Nile Delta right there. They say that's where it took place. Next slide. Why there? Why do Bible scholars believe that it took place there? Next slide. This is from dailybiblesudikiway.ca. And according to them, most likely places, the north part of the Gulf of Suez, okay, the Bitter Lakes, number two. Number three, Lake 
Timsa. Actually, the majority of people believe the crossing took place there at the Bitter Lakes. Why? Because they say the Red Sea actually is the Sea of Reeds. Reeds do not grow in the ocean, in the sea, but they grow in marshes and lakes. It's not, it's not too deep. And so what these scholars are suggesting is it took place there at number two, the Bitter Lakes, because it's not too deep and it's shorter. And if there's a wind, is there a natural explanation for all of this? Let's go ahead and read this from the LA Times. Research supports Bible's account of Red Sea parting, whether Gulf of Suez's geography would make it possible. Meteorologists and oceanographers uh, oceanog oceanographer, oceanographer, say, uh, <laughs> a tongue twister, oceanographer. Okay, so according to science, you know, scholars like to always turn a miracle into a natural thing. This is what scholars are trying to do with the Bible. <laughs> They're trying to make sense out of it. Okay, is this physically possible? Does this obey the laws of physics? And so before they can believe it, it should fit their worldview, which is a universe that is governed by laws of science. And so here's a meteorologist and an ocean, oceanographer, and they look at the, uh, some of the calculations using physics. And so it says here, sophisticated, can you read it? Sophisticated computer calculations indicate that the biblical parting of the Red Sea said to have allowed Moses and the Israelites to escape from the bondage in Egypt could have occurred precisely as the Bible describes it because of the peculiar geography of the northern end of the Red Sea, which is north of the Gulf of Suez, researchers report Sunday in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, a moderate wind, okay, blowing constantly for about 10 hours could have caused the sea to recede about a mile and the water level to drop 10 feet, leaving dry land in the area where many Bible scholars believe the crossing Occurred. So they have a scientific explanation. It took place north of the Gulf of Suez, and it took place in a, a waterbed that's not too deep, maximum 10 feet deep, because that's how much wind is able to push away the water. Okay, so that's what they're saying. And so what do most scholars also say? Let's go to the next slide in that same paper. Most scholars agree that the Israelites did not cross the Red Sea, but the Gulf of Suez, which is northern extension of the sea. The crossing probably occurred at the northern end of the Gulf around the site of modern town, the modern town of Suez. Paldor, a scholar, right, who is, an, a sabbat, who is on sabbatical in Rhode Island from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, said he became interested in the problem because of his acquaintance with the biblical descriptions and because it is an interesting unsolved problem in physical oceanography. The problem consists of simple physical laws, which are very well known and a very complicated set of equations that describe what happens to the water when the wind acts on it. So according to this scholar, it's a problem to believe the Exodus story unless you are able to give a physical description of how it is possible. A scientific explanation, explanation, a naturalistic explanation. And so they suggest, next slide, to look at the power of wind. And next slide, we'll show you what wind can do to a waterfall. 
Look at this video. The, uh, click play. That's a waterfall, but because there was a, a storm and the wind is blowing, Versus waterfall, who's winning? <laughs> the wind is winning, right? And so they get the idea, look at that. Maybe we can do a computer model of how the exodus could have taken place using the power of wind. And so we go to the next slide. This is a computer model of the exodus, the party of the borders, the physics of the exodus. Next slide. There. You know this, uh, just click play. Oh. <coughs> click the button, hover over the screen and then wait for the, until you see the arrow. No, no longer there. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, you can look at the web. You can go to the website later on, and you can look at it yourself. It's a computer model, and it shows that the water recedes, exposing dry land, and so they walk through the dry land. And then, when Pharaoh's army comes, the water comes back. But I don't think it'll drown them. <laughs> if it's only ten feet deep, do you think it could drown anyone? Probably not. Right? Ten feet. Maybe if they don't know how to swim, if they're wearing armor, okay. And so a lot of people subscribe to a naturalistic explanation. Next slide. Many people who are like that, for example, a minister from the Iglesia Nicrisa or the Marlex Cantor. Uh, there are those who doubt uh, the Bible's account of the parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites are treading on it as dry ground, Exodus 14, 21, 22, which is the passage we just read. But what happened recently, Hurricane Irma, a sucking dry some of Florida's beaches only proves that such is possible, as we can see now with our very eyes. So God is truth if you're able to provide a naturalistic explanation. But there's a big problem there. Did the crossing really take place north of the Gulf of Suez? We got to find out the truth, right? And so we go back to the Holy Bible. Next slide. And so this is what traditional belief tells us this is what scholars tell us it took place north of the Suez Canal where there are marshes and lakes so the crossing was not really the Red Sea technically but something not as deep like a marsh which isn't, doesn't sound too exciting right crossing of the Red Marsh <laughs> not too exciting at all don't I don't think Yahoo is gonna get much glory at all so where did it actually uh, take place and so we believe next slide if you go to this website uh, bible.ca oh my goodness it's chock full of information a lot of good stuff if you are into archaeology and if you are into uh, biblical 
detective work, go check out their website. And this person um, outlined where the route of the Exodus took place. Remember, they came from Goshen, right? You see Goshen on the left hand, the left upper side, right? Goshen. And so they left Goshen, followed the green path, followed the green path. And so when you look at this path, it doesn't, it goes south of the Gulf of Suez. And it goes up towards the Gulf of the other Gulf, right? Which was Aquaba. You see that? Right? And so we believe this is where the crossing took place. Not at the Gulf of uh, Suez, not at the northern, northern end of the marsh, but at the Gulf of Aquaba. Why do we believe that? Because it's in the Bible. How so? Let's go ahead to the next slide. We kind of uh, put the picture there. We'll go piece by piece, okay? In, uh, next slide, please. In Exodus 13, 17, Bible says, God did not lead them along the main road, the shortest route to the promised land, okay? So the shortest route is straight line. Next slide, please. That will be the shortest route. You see that? Because at the end of that arrow is the promised land. God didn't take them there, right? Where did God take them? Next slide, please. Exodus 13, 18, it says, God led them in a round about way through the wilderness toward, toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Do you see how the green path goes around about the wilderness towards the Red Sea? Do you see that? Could it be north of Gulf of Suez then? <laughs> Impossible! Right? Could not be. And so what else does the Bible say? Exodus 13, 20. So they took their journey from Sukkoth. Sukkoth, you see Sukkoth? Okay. And camped in Etham. So they go round about, around the wilderness, up and go up north to Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Is that the edge of the wilderness? Yes. What else happens? Let's go to the next slide, Exodus 14, 2-3. Tell the Israelites to turn back. After they go to Etham, to go back towards Pi-Hahiroth, right? Between Migdol, you see Migdol? And the sea. And there they are to camp at a place there, directly opposite of Baal Zephon. You can't see Baal Zephon there because it's too small. So we magnify it. Next slide. And so they go up to Etham. They go back to Pi-Hahiroth. They camp there at the camp that is directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Okay? So that's Baal Zephon there across the sea. You notice that? The cross. So Baal Zephon is across where they are camped at. And next slide. This is a, a satellite view. So they go up to Etham, go back. Camp eight days, and when they look across, they see Baal Zephon. Okay, and this is how it would look like to them, Baal Zephon. Next slide. Yeah, so Baal Zephon is over there. And so when they look uh, straight ahead, they will see Baal Zephon. So that's where they camped for eight days, right? And what else does the Bible use to describe the place? Next slide, Exodus 14. So it's directly opposite Baal Zephon. And then verse 3 says, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Do you see that? If you don't see it, then maybe the next slide will 
We'll make it clear to you. Next slide. All right, so they're closed in by the mountains of the wilderness. So when we look at these descriptions, we know it cannot be north of the Gulf of Suez. Impossible. They're going to cross the Red Sea that's in the Gulf of Aqaba, right? And so next slide. What else? After they cross uh, the Red Sea, in Exodus 15, we'll jump to Exodus 15, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. Do you see the wilderness of Shur there? After they crossed the Red Sea, you see it? Very tiny. And at the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found the water. Now they came, when they came to Marah, which is near the wilderness of Shur. Do you see Marah there? And so when we look at the description the Bible gives us, it cannot be north of the Gulf of Suez. It is where? It is in the Gulf of Aquaba, not the Gulf of Suez. It turns out, and this is really astonishing, it turns out in the Gulf of, in the Gulf of Aquaba, there are three natural land bridges. Next slide, please. Yeah, there are three natural land bridges, okay? The one in Niwaiba and the one in the Straits of Tehran, the crossing, okay? So there's, when we say a land bridge, it is a, a, a natural land bridge that's formed, but there's water on top of it, so it doesn't become too deep, okay? So it's probably, um, we don't know how deep it is back then, but if we look at it today, when we look at the Nueva Crossing, next slide, how deep is it, the Nueva Crossing? It's about 850 to 900 meters deep. That's pretty deep. I mean, look at Toronto CN Tower. That's 553 meters. 800 meters is about, what, 1,600 feet? What? <laughs> that is tall, right? That's very, very deep. And... The, but then the depth really is not the problem. It's the slope. Because the, you were talking about six million, I mean, two million people who are going to cross that, right? And if this land bridge if, is that deep, the Israelites are going to have a hard time. But of course, you know, God does miracles. So God can definitely help them out there. It turns out, however, there's another natural land bridge. Next slide. The one at the Straits of Tehran crossing, which fits the biblical description right and so let's take a look at that turns out next slide there's also a natural land bridge there and it's only 205 meters deep at its deepest and the slope is not steep at all it turns out so naturally this would be the place of the crossing does it fit the biblical description yes this is why we believe this was where the people of Israel crossed to go from the place of Egypt to the promised land right there. So when we go visit Israel, we can try to do the cross. <laughs> How many here are game for that? No? It's only about 15 miles away walk or 15 meters away. Um, not too far, right? 15 meters away. Or, okay. And so, 
we believe, I mean, even if it's 205 meters, that's how tall. How, how tall is that in feet? 205 meters deep. 700 feet? Wow, that's still tall, right? I mean, 700 feet. How tall is the Empire State Building? My goodness. That's pretty high, right? And so you would need more than a wind, more than a natural wind. This is why the naturalistic explanations, it will not fit the biblical description. Why? Why will it not fit the biblical description? Let's go back to Exodus 14, 21, 22. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and Yahuwah opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. And so that tells you they are going through a very deep part of the Red Sea. Not that deep, you know, like 1,600 feet, but deep enough so that you can see the walls forming. Does that require a miracle? Yeah. That defies any naturalistic explanation. So it looks more like this. Next slide, right? You see a wall, a wall of water to your left and a wall of water to your right, and you're walking across the land bridge that connects it across the Gulf of Aquaba. And so that requires what? A miracle. Next slide. And so what the Bible has described here, brethren, is a miracle. Sometimes people like to give naturalistic explanations when the truth is it's a miracle. We need to believe God does miracles. What further proves this was a miracle of God? Let's read the book of Exodus 14, verse 23. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. And so God finally relented the pillar of fire, the pillar of clouds, which divided Israel and Egypt. And so this time, the horses, the chariots, they chased uh, the people of God into the middle of the sea. And when they were there, and as the people of God crossed to the other side, what happened? Exodus 14, 24, 25. But just before dawn, Yahuwah looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites. The Egyptians shouted, Yahuwah is fighting for them against Egypt, and so to slow them down so that they would to get stuck in the middle of the sea, what did Jehovah do? He twisted their chariot wheels, and they were confused. They panicked, and they said, let's get out of here, but it's too late, because soon people of Israel would cross to the other side, and what did Jehovah do? Verse 26, when all the Israelites had reached the other side, Yahuwah said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again, then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. And this is what God instructed him to do. And so when this happened, he raised his hand over the sea. What happened? 
Exodus 14, 27, 28. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but Yahuwah swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. So it covered. Could not be a marsh, could it? Could not be a lake, could it? It had to be greater than that. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. I think if it was a marsh, they would have survived, right? It doesn't fit the biblical description and the miracle at the sea. And so what happens next? Exodus 14, 29 to 30. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how Yahuwah rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. And if you look at Exodus 15, when they wrote a song about what happened, this is how they described how the people, how the, e the Egyptians uh, perished. Exodus 15, 4 to 5, Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. Take note of that word, hurled. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters, I don't think that would be a description for a marsh, right? The deep waters gushed over them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. So two things you need to look at here. First, the deep waters gushed over them. It came from top, right? You see that? And then they sank to the bottom like a stone. Wait a minute, how could you sink to the bottom like a stone as is described here, if they were on the, the land bridge? Hmm. Let's go back to that drawing, uh, the graphic, next slide. You see the land bridge right there? How deep is the land bridge? 205 meters, okay? And it's actually 800 meters wide, that bridge. On the right side and on the left side, it's pretty deep. How deep? 1,280 meters on the left side, 1,392 meters on the right side. And so when the wall of water crashed on them like a tsunami, it blew them to the sides of the land bridge and they sank deep into the water. Does it make sense? Yes. Doesn't it? It fits the biblical description. So this was a miracle, a miracle of our almighty God. So next slide. So number seven, we need to have faith that Yahuwah can still perform miracles. Do you believe that? Yes. Can he do the impossible? Yes, he can do the impossible. This is why for us, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. God can do the impossible. God can do miracles even today. So if we want to cross our Red Sea, we need to have faith that whatever problem we're facing, God has the power to remove that from our midst. Because if we will not believe that, then we are believing ourselves. We are not scientists. We're not naturalistic philosophers. We are people of God who believe in the supernatural, okay? Because people sometimes read the Bible, they want to give a, a natural explanation for everything. We believe that God can do 
the miracle, the supernatural. What is God's purpose? And when the people of Israel saw what the God did, how did they feel? Let's read the book of Exodus 14.31. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that Yahuwah had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in Yahuwah and in his servant Moses. What did they feel? They felt awe. Would you also feel the same thing? <laughs> I mean, you crossed the Red Sea, and when you look to your side, you see a wall of water 800 feet high. You're going to be afraid a little bit walking through that, right? But they were able to walk through it. They saw the power of God, and they were in awe of what God is able to do. You know, when we face our Red Sea, we experience pain and suffering, right? But we can turn our, next slide, we can turn our ah to awe. When do we say ah when you're in pain, when you're in fear, right? But when you have faith and trust in the Almighty and what He can do, we can turn our ah to what? Awe. Our problems become opportunities for God to display His glory and His power. Let Him do that. Let Him do that. Let Him display His glory. Why does He want to display His glory? Let's read the book of Isaiah 63, 11 down to 12. Then His people remember the days of old of Moses. Where is, where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the, shepherd, the shepherds of His flock? Where is He who put His Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? who divided the waters before them to make for himself, what does it say? An everlasting name. When God does his miracles and his work, he wants to attach his name to it. Why? Because he wants the people to know, I am Yahuwah. The true God who created all things, who does all this, is Yahuwah, our God. There's no other name that is greater than the name of Yahuwah. That's why that's the name he gave to his who? Son. That's why even during, during our time, you know, when, we, when God does something for us, glorify Him. When you're facing some kind of problem or difficulty, don't see it as a problem or an obstacle. See it as an opportunity to see what God is going to do with that. And when He does, glorify Yahuwah, your Maker, and your God. Okay? That's how we cross our Red Sea. Next slide. Now we go to our mail. Our mailbox. What is the first question on our mailbox? Let's go to the first one. Next one is, do you still believe that Brother Felix Y. Manalo is the messenger of God in these last days? You know, there's, apparently there are brethren who are confused and they accuse us that we, don't long, we no longer believe that Brother Felix Y. Manalo is a messenger of God. I ask you, do you believe that Brother Felix Y. Manalo is a messenger of God? Yes, we believe that. But before answering that question, I want, to answer, I want to ask this question too. Next slide. Do we believe in Mary, the mother of Yahushua? Do we believe that Mary is the mother of Yahushua? Yeah. But our belief concerning Mary must not go beyond the scriptures. Because there are those who worship who? Mary, right? Is that going beyond scriptures? Yes. Do we love Mary? Yeah. Do we respect Mary? Yeah. Do we believe she gave the virgin birth? Yeah. Do we believe she's the mother of Yahushua? Yeah. But we will not worship 
Mary. Do you get it? Yes. How about this question? Do we believe that Yahusha is the Son of God? Yeah. But we don't believe He's God, the Son. You know, when we say that, people accuse us, you don't believe Yahusha, right? You are demeaning Him. You are belittling Him. Are we belittling Yahusha when we say we don't believe He's God, the Son? No. We only believe what the Bible tells us. Not beyond that. Because if we believe the Son of God is also God the Son, we're going beyond what the Scriptures are, is teaching us, right? And so when we go back to the question, do you still believe that Brother Felix Swaminalo is the messenger of God in these last days? What do we say? Yes! But we must, we must not go beyond Scripture concerning our belief in Brother Felix. Why? Manalo. And so what is our belief concerning Brother Felix Y. Manalo as a messenger of God in these last days? The book of John, 6 verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. I want to pause here for a while. Now, see ministers would use this a passage, John 6, 29, and then they will apply and say, we should believe in Brother Felix Y. Manalo. Okay? But I ask you, when Yahusha says that this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent, who is the Him referred to there? Who is this Him whom He sent that we must believe? Is it Brother Felix Manalo? No. Who is that? We read John 6, 29, 6, 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do we believe Brother Felix Fuemanalo is a messenger? Yes, but he's not the greatest messenger. Who is the greatest messenger? The Son of our Almighty God. Who is he? Yahusha. This is why when we believe Brother Felix Manalo is a messenger, we need to place him in his rightful place. What is that? Well, let's go to the book of Matthew 11, 10 to 11. Yahushua speaking, and he's speaking about a messenger. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John, the Baptist, here's Yahusha, and he's speaking about a messenger who's going to be sent. What's his name? John the Baptist. He said, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was a great messenger of God. But Yahusha, what does uh, John the Baptist say when he began to preach? And then Yahusha comes into the scene. John 3, 27, 28, 30. John answered, this is John the Baptist, and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. The same thing with the sugo, with Brother Felix Wamanalo, right? Yes, we believe he's a messenger of God, but the greatest messenger is who? Yahusha. Brother Felix Fuemanalo was sent to point us to who? Yahusha. Brother Felix Fuemanalo was sent not to point to himself. This is why he often said, don't believe in him. Believe in who? Believe in Yahusha. Why? Because he's the one that is preached by all the messengers, the prophets, the apostles. They all preached about Yahusha. They pointed to Yahusha. How Mashiach is the greatest 
of our messenger. But sometimes as human beings, there's a tendency in us when there is one who preaches, when one is a messenger of God or a prophet, what is that tendency? The book of Acts 14, 12 down to 15, they gave Barnabas the name Zeus. And Paul, this is Apostle Paul, is he a messenger? Yeah. Paul the name Hermes because he was the chief speaker, the priest of the god Zeus, whose temple stood just outside of the town. Brought bulls and flowers to the gate, for he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice to the apostles. When Barnabas and Paul heard that what they were about to do, they tore their clothes and ran into the middle of the crowd shouting, Why are you doing this? We ourselves are only human beings like you. We are here to announce the good news. The tendency for human beings is to idolize our spiritual leaders. Isn't that true? We kiss their hands. If I touch the hands of this preacher, I will not wash my hands because I have the blessing of the Father. Right? Just like what happened here. They wanted to idolize Apostle Paul and Barnabas. So much so they offered a they wanted to offer a sacrifice. When Paul found out about that, what did he do? Tore his clothes. Don't do that. We're human beings like you. Brother Felix Fabinal is a messenger, but he's also a human being. Right? He's not the Messiah. And so we need to place our belief in the right place. Because if not, we could be guilty of idolatry. We respect, we love Brother Felix Waimanalo. We believe he is the messenger of God who preached to us so that we will know what we need to do to be saved. And because of his preaching, the Church of Christ emerged from the Far East. We believe that. We believe in the prophecies concerning him. But our belief concerning the messenger must only be according to what the Bible teaches. Okay? All right. Let's go to the next question. Those who preach doctrines... That was not preached, or were not preached by Brother Felix Wymanalo, are preaching another gospel, according to Galatians 1, 6 down to 7. This is, I guess this kind of became a, a talk of the town verse. People spread, spread it to each other and accusing us that we, because we taught about the name of God, the name of Yahusha, which was never taught by the Sugo, right? And all of a sudden, we are teaching a different gospel. We're preaching another gospel and they even put Galatians 1, 6 down to 7. But is that true? Well, let's go read Galatians 1, 6 to 7. Apostle Paul says, I'm surprised at you. In no time at all, you were deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Actually, there's no other gospel. But I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ, is it good to believe in another gospel? No. What do we need to do with the gospel? We need to preserve it. Why? Because if we change it, what do we do with the gospel? What, what becomes of the gospel? It becomes another gospel. And so when Apostle Paul says this other gospel, which we should not be believing, what needs to happen, what is he referring to as the other gospel, which is a changing or perverting of the gospel of Christ? Let's read Galatians 1.8. We read 1.6, uh, 6.7. Let's read 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may he be condemned to hell. That's pretty powerful. Right? So what is this other gospel? This another gospel which should not be the basis of our faith. It is the gospel that is different from what was preached by the 
apostles. I wonder if Apostle Paul said, only believe what I say to you. Did he say that? Did Apostle Paul say to the Christians, only believe my letters. Don't believe in the letters of Apostle Peter. Don't believe in the, the, the work of the prophets. Just mine. Is that what Apostle Paul said? No, no, no. He said, we, we preach to you. What did he preach? The whole gospel. In fact, according to Apostle Paul himself, what is that gospel that should not be changed or altered? Let's read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is that gospel that should not be changed? It is all scripture, not just parts of it. Is Micah included? Zephaniah included? Exodus included? How about Genesis? Yeah, all scripture. What if you take out Exodus? What if you take out Micah? What if you take out Zephaniah? What if you say, okay, we can only use what was taught by the Sugo. What are we doing with the gospel? We're changing it, right? We're changing the gospel because that's not the gospel preached anymore by the Apostle Paul. Do you think Apostle Paul knows what the Sugo or Brother Felix Fimonalo is going to teach? Do you get it? Because if we're going to say only believe in the gospel that was taught by the Sugo, then that's a different gospel. That's a different gospel. In fact, if we add or subtract from the gospel or all of scripture, what does the Bible say? Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. What does the Bible say? Don't add to or subtract from what is recorded. It doesn't say do not add or subtract from what Brother Felix Manalo taught. But if that is what you're going to believe, then you just change the gospel. Because there are those who say quite plainly and quite boldly, we should only believe in what was taught by the Sugo. No, don't add or subtract from what Brother Felix Manalo taught. There are those who teach that. But if you teach that and believe that, then you're going against what is recorded here. Because we must not add to or subtract from what the Bible, all Scripture reveals to each and every one of us. Because when you say we should not teach this part because well, it was not taught by the Sugo, then we have changed the gospel. And what is the warning of Apostle Paul? Galatians 1, 6-8, I'm surprised at you in no time at all are you or you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Actually, there is no other gospel. But I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may he be condemned to hell. Which is in consonance with what we just read earlier, right? If you add or subtract from the Bible... Because you only believe what a certain man taught, the Sugo, Brother Felix Manalo. Essentially, if you say that, you change the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, if you do that, you're believing a different gospel. So we're not the ones who are believing in another gospel, are we? The gospel we believe in is what the Apostle Paul preached there in Galatians 1. Because we accept all, all Scripture. Not just parts of it. You get it? 
this is why if I were to tell you, if I were to ask you this question, brethren, next slide. Did the Sugo preach that the remnant of the third group of God's people will call on the name of Yahuwah? What is your answer? Did the Sugo preach that the remnant of the third group of God's people will call on the name of Yahuwah? What is your answer? I'm going to change the question just a little bit. I'm going to change one word in that question. Okay? Next slide. What did I change? The the to an ah. I'm going to ask the question again. Did a sugo preach that the remnant of the third group of God's people will call on the name of Yahuwah? Now what is your answer? Yes. Who is that sugo? Who is that sugo who specifically mentioned the remnant of the third group of God's people will call on the name of Yahuwah? You know who? Next slide. The prophet Zechariah. What did he say? The one third. Who's that? It's us. What will happen to them? They'll be tested. What will happen to the remnant? They will call on the name of? My name. Yeah, my name, which is the name of Yahuwah. That's why the L-O-R-D is not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be what? Yahuwah. A tetragrammaton. Right? Do you believe Zechariah is a sugo? So why won't you believe in the name? You say it was not taught by the sugo? Yes, it was taught by another sugo. If we're going to say we're not going to use the name, then we're like saying that Brother Felix Huaymanalo is greater than Zechariah, the prophet. Are we going to say that? We cannot say that. Yes, every single sugo, quote unquote, or messenger, they have their own different works. Right? They have their own assignments. But the greatest one is who? Yahusha. Okay? This is why we cannot dismiss the name simply because it was not preached by the Sugo. Okay? Because it was preached by a Sugo. Unless, of course, the Sugo, you believe, is the greatest Sugo. But as far as I'm concerned, the greatest Sugo is who? Yahusha. And Yahusha also declared the name of Yahuwah. Okay? All right, let's go to another question. Pakitanong na rin po kay Kajan kung ano talaga ang stand ng grupo ninyo. Kung yung mga nakatala, nasa talaan, meaning in INC, ang nakatala pa, na hindi naman sumusunod sa masasamang itinuro ni EVM, ay ibinibilang ninyong iglesia ni Manalo. Okay, so those who are still in the INC institution, but they do not follow EVM, um, are they considered members of the Church of Manalo? Okay, well, this is how I'm going to answer that question. Matthew 23, 8 to 10. Yahushua says, don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher. And all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as Father. For only God in heaven is your spiritual father. And don't let anyone call you teacher. For you have only one teacher, the Messiah. Now, there are people who say, well, someone coined up the phrase Church of Manalo. Are there people who could be members of the Church of Manalo? Yeah. When? When to them, the one and only teacher is? Brother Felix Y. Manalo. 
or Brother Eduardo V. Manana. If that's your belief, that my one and only teacher, the one, the only one I'm going to listen to is Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Erdi Manalo, Brother Eduardo Manalo, then that would qualify that you are a member of the Church of Manalo. But if we believe the one and only teacher is the Messiah, then we are member, members of the Church of Yahusha, who is the Christ, the Church of Christ. Right? You get it? And so who are those who truly are in the church of Yahusha HaMasiach? John 17, 20, 21. I pray, Yahusha says, that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me, who are those who truly belong to Yahusha. He belong to his church, not Church of Manalo, but Church of Christ. Those who are one with who? God and his son, Yahuwah and Yahusha. They're the ones who belong to the Church of Yahusha. This is why we're not one with EVM. We're not one with Brother Felix Y. Manalo. We're not one with Brother Iran G. Manalo. It doesn't mean we don't respect them and believe them and follow them. We are one with Yahuwah and Yahusha. Because if we're going to say, oh, we're one with Ka Felix Manalo, Ka Erdi, then it's like we're replacing Yahusha. And Yahusha said, you are all equal. As brothers and sisters, you have only one Messiah. You have one messenger who is the greatest of all. Place your faith in him. Okay, so those who truly belong to the church of Yahusha are the ones who accept that he is the only one who is our true teacher and Messiah. Okay, all right, let's go to the, the next question. Naniwala ka kaagad sa nagturo sa inyo, hindi ka nagsuri kung kanino natupad ang hula ni propetang Joel. In Joel 2, 28-32, nang ipahayag di Apostle Pedro gawa, uh, Acts 2.17-21, ay natupad ang hula sa panahon nila ng mga apostol. Okay, so according to this person, Acts 2.17-21 was fulfilled during the days of the apostles. When? First century. Nung araw ng Pentecostes. He was even very specific concerning when it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Uh, silang lahat ay nangapuspos ng Espiritu Santo. Basahin ninyo ang aklat ng mga gawa, read the book of Acts, and you will see the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. Uh, may ilang tanong ako sa inyo ngayon. Kailan ibinuhos ang Espiritu Santo sa inyo? Meron na ba kayong mga panaginip at pangitain? Truth is, there are many brethren who are with us who do have dreams and visions that have been fulfilled, but we don't broadcast that now, do we? Right? Ano ang mga kababalaghan? Do we experience miracles? Yes! Do we broadcast that? No, because it's not the basis of our faith. Lalabas na nagsisinungaling kayo kung wala kayong sagot. We do have an answer. Isa pa pala, meron na ba kayong mga hula? Gusto kong malaman. Interesado ako. So the question is, um, is it true that, Joe, that uh, the prophecy that was mentioned by the Apostle Peter Acts 2.17.21, wherein he quotes the prophet Joel, that it was fulfilled already 
in the first century, as mentioned in Acts 2, 1 down to 4. So let's go read uh, Acts 2, 17 to 21, which was cited by the person asking the question. Acts 2, 17 to 21, in the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on everyone. Your sons and daughters will speak what God has revealed. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour my spirit on my servants, on both men and women. They will speak what God has revealed. I will work miracles in the sky and give signs on the earth, blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon become as red as blood before the terrifying day of Yahuwah comes. Then whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah will be See, that's what it says in Acts 2, 17 to 21. Was this fulfilled in the first century? Yes, but it did not stop in the first century. It began to be fulfilled in the first century, but it continued until the very end. What's the proof it will continue until the very end? Look at the last part. Does it mention before the terrifying day of Yahuwah comes? When is that? That's our time, right before the end of the world. And so the fulfillment is not limited to the first century. Was it fulfilled in the first century? Yes. How was it fulfilled in the first century? Acts 2, 1 down to 4. Uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so how was the Spirit that was poured out on everyone fulfilled in the first century? That was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When the people who were gathered there began to speak in tongues. Could this be explained naturally? No, but supernaturally, because the Holy Spirit was given to each and every one of them. And so when he began to speak in tongues, why do we say that the whole, why does the, the, the uh, prophet Joel say that I will pour my spirit on everyone? Let's read the book of Acts 2, 5 down to 12. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from Every nation under heaven. Okay? When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Pyrgia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And so why does the prophet Joel say that on that day, God will pour his spirit on everyone? Because all of different races and nationalities, in fact, the Bible says, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, they would receive the spirit of our almighty God. Who are they? God-fearing Jews. Okay. And so when this was taking place, what did, what did it cause people to ask? 
and conclude. Acts 2.13, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. But of course, that's not the explanation. What is the explanation? That's when Peter stands up. What does he say? Acts 2.14.17, then Peter, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the proud fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And so when... This was taking place, people speaking in tongues. It caused the Apostle Peter to stand up and say a prophecy has been fulfilled. It is the prophecy mentioned by Joel. That's why he quoted him. And he began the quote by saying, in the last days, because the Christian era is also considered the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. When was that fulfilled? Right there. The of Pentecost. But on that day, how about this other one? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Was that also fulfilled on that day? There's no biblical record. And so how about the rest of the prophecy mentioned by Joel? When will that be fulfilled? Well, to whom does the promise of receiving the Spirit? Because God says, I will pour out my Spirit on everyone. When it says, everyone... Who specifically are the ones who will receive the power of the Holy Spirit? Acts 2, 38, 39. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will. Paul, you know this passage very well. The Bible says there are three groups who will comprise of the word everyone. That everyone included there are everyone who is included in the promise. And who are those who have the promise? You, the Jews. Who else? The Gentiles, your children. Who else? Those who are from afar off. As many as the Lord our God will. Called the third. That's us. So will we also receive the Spirit? Yes. Do we need the Spirit? Yes. Why? So that by means of the Spirit, we will understand the message of the words of God and be able to proclaim it. This is why that also applies to us. When it was fulfilled on the Pentecost, it was just the beginning. But it's going to continue. Why? Because the promise wasn't just to the Jews, but also the Gentiles and to those who are from afar off. And when it's going to be fulfilled from, the, from those who are from afar off, what will be included? Book of Acts 2.17, the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. Fulfilled in Pentecost. But it continues. Your sons and daughters will speak what God has revealed. Your men and will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit on my servants, on both men and women. They will speak what God has revealed. I will work miracles in the sky and give signs on the earth, blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will become as red as blood before the terrifying day of Yahuwah comes. Has that happened already in the day of Pentecost? No, it's happening now. 
and before that day comes, what will happen according to the prophecy? Then whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah will be saved. So by means of the Spirit of Yahuwah that He promised we will receive, what shall we be able to do? Proclaim the name. Right? Does the promise of the Spirit pertain to us? Yeah. Did it pertain to the Jews in the Pentecost? Yeah. Because we all receive the same Spirit. Okay? And today, when that Spirit is being manifested, we are going to proclaim the name. But who among those who are from the third group will proclaim that name? Well, let's go to Joel 2.32 that Apostle Peter quoted. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as Yahuwah has said, among the remnant whom Yahuwah calls. And so we who belong to the remnant will be the ones who call upon the name of Yahuwah. Different manifestations of the power of the Spirit of God. It began on the day of Pentecost. It continues until the second advent of Yahusha. But before that day comes, what will be proclaimed? The name. Is that against the Spirit? No. That's according to the gifting of the Spirit to His promised people. Okay? All right, next slide. This will, this will be our last question. And this is really a strange question. Very, very strange. Not all unity is good. Not all division is bad. This is doctrine of Satan, doctrine of Balaam, and teaching of Nicolaitans. I would like to see the proof of that. <laughs> uh. And why did this person say this? Because last week we mentioned this, next slide, not all unity is good, not all division is bad. Remember that? Do we believe this to be true? Yeah. Is it biblical? Yeah. But he or she says, next slide, not all unity is good, not all division is bad. This is a doctrine of Satan, doctrine of Balaam. Really? And the teaching of Nicolaitans? Really? I'd like to see that. Right. And so, why do we believe that not all unity is good, not all division is bad? Well, what's the proof that not all unity is good? Genesis 37, 30, 32. We'll, go, we'll get examples from each of the different epochs in, the time, in time. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, the boy's gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in his blood. He sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? <laughs> what is the story about? Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. Reuben comes home. Or Reuben comes back to his brothers and realizes Joseph has been sold to slavery. And so he's afraid because he says to himself, what am I going to explain dad? That's his favorite, <laughs> right? I'm going to be in trouble because I'm in charge now. And so what do they conspire? What do they do? Hey, let's, let's do this. Let's all unite in this. Unite in what? A story. What kind of story? Fictitious. What do they do? They look, they got the, uh, the favorite jacket. What is that? The uh, rainbow. <laughs> Dipped it in goat's blood. And we'll give it to dad and say, you know, this is, does this look familiar? Well, your favorite son has been killed. <laughs> Did they all agree? Did they have unity? Was that a good kind of unity? No. Because they united in a lie. Not a good unity at all. And so I wonder what the explanation of the one who asked that question is. 
What else? Jeremiah 5.31, prophets speak nothing but lies, priests will as the prophets command, and my people offer no objections. Why? Because they all united. They were one with the prophets, one with the priests, one with the kings. Why? Because they don't want to be the odd person out. So no one dared object. Sound familiar? Sounds very familiar. They were united in doing the wrong thing. They were united in preserving a lie. Is that unity? You know how strong that unity was? Uh, Ezekiel 22 verse 30. I looked for someone, Yahuwah says, who might rebuild the wall of righteousness because they all went out of righteousness. They put righteousness to the side. I searched for someone to stand in the gap and the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. Was that, was that perfect unity? Talk about perfect unity, right? Unity in doing what? Unrighteousness. So is that an example of unity? Yeah. yeah. What kind of unity? It's the wrong kind of unity. United in doing unrighteousness, not united in doing righteousness. Here's another one. Acts 7, 54, 57, 58. We're in the Christian era now. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. He must have really upset. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Do you know what this is about? This is about Stephen. He was, he was being tried for blasphemy. And so he was in a court. And the Sanhedrin is there. The council was there because Stephen was being tried. And the one thing that you must never do when you're being tried in the Jewish court, you must never pronounce Yahuwah's name. You must never do that. Guess what Stephen did? He pronounced the name of Yahuwah. And so the Jewish council, what did they do? They all stopped their ears. No! And they gnashed their teeth. And then they had unity. They ran at him with one accord. And with one accord, what did they do? They stoned him. Did they have unity? Yes. Yeah. They were united in killing a person who pronounced the name of Yahuwah. Did they have unity? Yeah. What kind of unity? Not a good one. Not a good one at all. Right? I'm going to give one more example. So that this brother or sister who asking this question will be convinced. I hope he's convinced. Um, and this one is very familiar. Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. <laughs> See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers your rulers are rebels companions of thieves they all love bribes and chase after gifts they do not defend the cause of the fatherless the widow's case does not come before them this people this people of god bible says they used to be a faithful city so they were the people of god became what how because of the rulers what did what did the rulers do they became companions of thieves check they love bribes and chase after gifts. Check. They did not defend the cause of the fatherless. Check. The widow's case does not come before them. They expelled her instead. Check. Did the people unite with the rulers? Yes. They were united. 
They were united with these rulers. What kind of, uni what kind of unity is that? Wrong. Wrong kind of unity. So next slide. So it's true, biblically speaking, not all unity is good. Have we shown that? Yes. Biblically? Yes. How about this? Not all division is bad. Is that true also? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because when you think division, not all division is bad. In fact, there's kind of division that is commanded. We are to divide ourselves from the world. Are we going to be one with the world? This is why the Bible says, set yourself apart. That's what the word holy means, to be divided from the world. To be set apart from the world. What kind of division is that? Good or bad? That's good. If you're going to be united with the world, that's not good unity. That's, that's bad unity. So divide from the world. Divide from what is evil. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And in, in fact, the book of Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, this is what Apostle Paul says. But of course, there must be divisions among you. This is Apostle Paul. Right? There must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Because if we're going to accept false doctrines and false beliefs and condone and every false practice and lies and adultery, right? If we're going to condone adultery, then it's like how can we be recognized as the ones who have God's approval. This is why we separate or divide from those who are not practicing the things God wants us to practice. Is this a good kind of division? Yeah. Why? Because it is a way by which people will recognize those who have the approval of Yahuwah our God. This is why the more we know about the truth, the closer we get to perfection, the more is being cut off. Remember the slice of the sword? The word of God, as it is preached, more and more get offended, and so they step away. They have been cut off from the people of God, right? And so that's a good kind of division. What else is a good kind of division? First Isaiah 1, 8 to 9. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a heart in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless Yahuwah of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Is there division there? Yeah. If there was no division there, when we could have been punished together like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What did God do? He divided. He set apart. He left a very small remnant. It's my question to the one who asked the question. If you believe all unity is good, and he or she should go back to I and C. <laughs> right? I mean, if you believe all oh, unity is good, and if there's division, that all division is bad, and it's of Satan and Balaam and Nicolaitan, brother, sister, just go back. Be one with EVM. Why did you betray that one? Oneness with EVM. Be united with EVM. Go back. Right? Does that make sense? But we are not going to do that. Why? Because we believe there are divisions that God has ordained. God sets his people apart. He set the very small remnant apart. But even among the very small remnant, will there be division? 
Let's read the book of Isaiah 25, 26. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Is that division? Yeah. When you go through the fire and refined by the fire, that's division because impurities cannot be removed. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And so the very small remnant will also go through the fire and be refined. And when you're being refined, guess what? There's division. All right? They're setting apart. The dross and the impurities will be thoroughly purged. I want you to focus on the word thoroughly. God is speaking to the very small remnant here. Thoroughly purged. What does that mean? It's going to go through the fire. And when you go through the fire and it's thoroughly purged, many, many parts are going to be left off. Right? And who are the ones who are going to remain? Zechariah 13.9. I will bring the one-third through the fire. Refine them as silver is. Refine. And so there's division. And test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. And I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahuwah is my God. And so after more setting apart takes place, because we go to the fire, be refined as silver is refined. Those who will remain. What is our common relationship? What is our common belief? What will we do? What will we unite in? The name. We will call them the name of Yahuwah. This is why not all division is bad. There's division that was ordained. Because when you go through the fire, division takes place. You have iron ore. You have gold ore. You take it through the fire. It doesn't come out the same. It comes out a little tiny speck of gold. <laughs> right? And so it's been divided from the core. The very small remnant will be divided from the core. And it will go through refinement again. So that what will remain will call upon the name of Yahuwah. This is why we believe that uh, not all unity is good and not all division is bad. Is that biblical? Yes. Okay. All right. That is our lesson for today. Let us all stand for our closing prayer. Everlasting Father. Yes. Our gracious God, Yahuwah. Yes. Thank you so much for the gift of your spirit. Amen. Father, you have set apart your people. We believe we have work that you want us to do. Yes. Work ordained long ago, as proclaimed by the prophets and the apostles. Amen. Father, here we are on the verge of salvation, yes. living during the days of the ends of the earth. Yes. Soon you will send the Messiah, the greatest messenger of all. We, as people of God, as we were taught by the messenger, Brother Felix Y. Manalo, that we will turn our faith to him, to Yahushua, the Messiah always, because he is the one who is our chief shepherd. Yes. Lord Yahusha, please be with us. Yes. We need your help. Uphold us. Yes. Strengthen us always. Yes. When we face problems and difficulties, we will rely on you. Yes. Please strengthen the, the faith of your servants. Yes. Father, remember your people, those who have many problems in life, yes. those who are facing adversities, yes. whatever that Red Sea may be in front of us. Yes. We have faith in you because you can perform miracles. Yes. Father Yahuwah, 
have mercy upon your people. When we look up to you in prayer, when we deny self and completely give ourselves to you, please send your Holy Spirit. Help us that we will overcome all things and be able to cross that Red Sea. Father, we know we will be tested. So be it. If it is ordained by you, we believe that you are always in control and that you will always provide for our needs. Please forgive all our sins and prepare us for the great day of our salvation. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. For we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen.